I'm Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. With me today is Steve Hilton, who once worked at 10 Downing Street for the former Prime Minister David Cameron, but is now a Fox News presenter with his own show, The Next Revolution. It's good to see you here, Steve, and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. First of all, Steve, on a personal level, you've been in the States now for a few years. Are you enjoying America? I love America. I really seriously do. It's just such an incredible place. We're very lucky to be here, I think. And 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 more seriously, I just find it just so interesting to learn about America. And these things that I once studied academically back at Oxford, and it literally went in one ear out the other. I had no clue. I was I was, had to read all this stuff and and write essays about it, but I didn't really understand. And just being here and, and understanding what the founders meant and why it was so important and the, the values and basics of American political life, I just think is really fascinating and I love it. Well, I can empathize with that because in my business career, when I was uh, chairman and CEO of ADT, I was actually based here for over 20, yep. 20 years. Your show, The Next Revolution, which the idea of uh, looking at the impact of the populist movement in the United States and around the world. So how goes the revolution? Two years on from Donald Trump's election and the Brexit referendum, where do you think we are and where are things heading next? I think that in there's, a, there's been a real divergence between the US and the UK on that front because uh, you had these two populist votes, if you like, an expression of populist anger at the, the way things have been run. Uh, people wanted big change. And the difference between the US and UK is that in the US, they're getting the change, whereas in the UK, they're not. And so I think that as far as those who voted for Donald Trump are concerned, he is absolutely delivering on many of his promises, not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them. And he's and he's challenging the what I describe as the elitist ideology that's been shared by both mainstream parties in America, Republicans and Democrats, for many years, the consensus around globalization and trade and so on. And he's challenging that and actually getting results. He renegotiated a trade deal in a way that people didn't expect to be successful. Now, you can quibble over the details and how much of an improvement it is. But even his critics, even the president's critics are saying it's an improvement and does a good job for American workers. Now, that is a classic example of a populist promise being delivered. And you, you see it in the economic data, too, with um, good news on jobs and incomes rising again, not as fast as you'd like, but going in the right direction. And so I think that people in America could say, well, it's moving forward. Now, I've just written a book which sets out how it needs to go much further and faster and beyond just those core issues of trade and immigration that you talk about the whole time when you think about populism. In the UK, on the other hand, it's just a total mess because you've got someone who, in 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 a sense, was sort of rose to the top of the of the of the heap after the populist rebellion, who doesn't believe in it, who campaigned against it, and who is therefore approaching the whole thing. This is Theresa May, obviously, with a mindset that that was a terrible mistake that we need to protect the country from, and that's obviously shared by the establishment that is still empowered, the civil service and the establishment uh, politicians in Westminster. So the whole attitude is not to make the most of this populist revolution in the UK, it's to somehow deal with what they consider to be its worst uh, potential consequences. 
Now, just to refresh me, Stephen, get it out the way, um, the name of the book is? Positive Populism. I'm, I'm going to do the subtitle as well because it's very long but very important and informative. Revolutionary Ideas to Rebuild Economic Security, Family and Community in America. Do you sometimes regret starting things? I shouldn't have asked that question, really, <laughs> should I, Steve? Now, one of the things I think Brexit and Trump have in common is that most in the liberal political and media uh, establishment could never get to grasp that reasonable people could yeah. vote for Brexit or Trump. Would you share that type of view? Exactly right. And you still have that attitude today. This is... Um, somewhere where I think there, there is a commonality today between the US and the UK, where you still, I mean, it's fascinating to me that Hillary Clinton, even this week, was basically repeating her biggest mistake of the 2016 campaign, where she described half the country, the Trump supporters, as a basket of deplorables, racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-LGBTQ. She literally went through the same list this week, two years on, and clearly has learned and I think she's a good representative of the political establishment, not just Democrats, by the way, the Republicans as well, and the, the ruling class more broadly, who clearly don't, have not taken that vote to heart at all, have learnt practically nothing from it, and cast around for reasons to explain the result for, through uh, whether that's the Russians interfering or poor campaigning, whatever. but they, they missed the fundamental point, which is the policy failures of the old regime old regime being both Democrats and Republicans, that advanced an ideology, which was basically pro-globalization, pro-centralization in the economy and government, pro-automation, and of course, uncontrolled immigration. All those things benefited the people at the top. But most Americans were left out of that. And that's why they voted for Trump, because they wanted to change things. And, they, and for years, it seemed to them that it didn't matter whether they voted Democrat or Republican. Nothing really changed. The same people were in power. The same ideas were pushed forward. And, and the people at the top benefited, and they didn't. That policy failure is something that I just don't understand why the establishment, Democrats and Republicans, are just not taking seriously at all. They're looking for all sorts of other explanations than the fundamental policy explanation. I mean, my research in the U.S. has consistently found that the Trump voters to be completely unmoved by things like the Mueller investigation, while his opponents think he's banged to rights uh, on it. How do you see all this Mueller stuff playing out, Russia et al.? Well, I think that um, the first point to make is that it depends on the depends on a couple of things we don't know yet. Obviously, what he says in his report to Congress. Secondly, who's in control of Congress at the time the report's published? That'll make a difference. I, I agree with those people you spoke to that the original premise, uh, and this is actually somewhat distorted by, by, by the president's supporters who jump on one aspect of the, the, the mandate for the, for the Mueller investigation, which was investigating potential collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia to influence the election. And they point to the fact that there's been no evidence put forward by anyone to really establish any collusion. And they say, see, the whole thing's a waste of time. Well, actually, that was only one half of the mandate. The other half was just to examine Russian interference. And there, I think, everyone should be able to agree that they've done a fantastic job, a really brilliant forensic job of, of really understanding the, the detailed way in which the Russian government did try 
to, to influence things. Now, you can argue about whether they were trying to swing the election to Donald Trump or whether they were just trying to cause trouble because that's what they like to do. But it's very helpful, the, that, that part of the investigation. I would agree with those, however, who say that the idea that the Russians won the election for Trump is preposterous. It goes back to a much... Why, if that's the case, and they point to money spent on Facebook ads and, and, and fake news articles and all the rest of it, that's so trivial in comparison to the to the underlying economic and social factors and the fact that people wanted a big change and they're presented with two candidates, one of whom represented continuity in the status quo and the other one who represented a really big change. That's the reason that Donald Trump was elected, not the Russians. And it's just astonishing to me that they're, they're still not able to to get off this idea that it was the Russians that that won it for Trump. It's just that their failure to confront their own their own failure, I think, is amazing. I call the uh, Democrats the surely now brigade. In other words, every time that Trump does something, they say surely now <laughs> is the time that his supporters realize what a terrible mistake they've made. But nonetheless, the Trump base is holding up remarkably firm at this particular juncture. Yeah, I think there are two reasons for that. Maybe we can, maybe three. One is the underlying economic progress that's being made. There's it's, things are really humming. Just the other, just the other day, the chairman of the Federal Reserve made incredible comments on the economy, saying, you know, this is the, the unprecedented in modern history, I think he said, and that it is going to continue. So there's a, there's a sort of ec- base of economic good news. The second thing is the delivery by the president of specific promises on trade and on other areas where he's just saying, look, I said I'd do this and I'm doing it. I said I'd get tough with China. I am. I said I would get rid of the Iran deal. I have. I said I would deregulate the economy, etc. So there's a whole set of things you can point to that where he made specific promises. And it's very evident that they're being delivered. Now, you may not agree with the policies, but you can't disagree with the fact that they're being delivered. But then there's a third thing, which I think is the really missed by a lot of the media commentary around this, which is that every time the president does something that the consensus and the ruling elite and the, and the you know, the chattering classes would be the phrase uh, that, that the British audience would understand, cannot believe the latest horror that comes from the president's fingers as he's tweeting um, or the latest unbelievable thing he said at a rally. How could he offend norms in such a way? This is just so unpresidential. We've never seen this before. Every single time he does that, his supporters are cheering. That's what they want. They want someone who doesn't behave like all the fancy people that have screwed things up for so long. They want someone to go to Washington and just mess with everyone and fall out with everyone and be a bull in a china shop. That's what they wanted. And so far from undermining his support, it actually increases it. But it's not just that. The important thing is it's not just that. It's the substance as well, the substance of economic progress and the delivery of promises. I went to Mississippi and attended in person the Trump rally because whilst you may see it on television, television doesn't give you the vibe, the vibration, the... uh, uh, the shock of actually being there. And uh, it was quite clear that he knows how to energize yeah. his base. It was a showman, uh, very professionally at work. Not just the speech, but the the gestures, the turning to the crowd, the waving, uh, the way he delivered it. And it really confirmed to me uh, that that base, even though my research had shown that uh, well over 90% of his base was still on uh, on side, and even the reluctant Trump voters, nearly 90%, 
that voted for him last time were still there, that this phenomena of Trump is not going away. Yes, and, and, and it's very difficult to see how a politician can be successful in the old way of doing things because it will seem so fake and inauthentic. There's a couple of things I'd say about the rallies in particular. One is an observation made, I think it was in a New Yorker piece, I can't remember, it was a, it was a brilliant piece about the just about the rallies. And the point was that, it was made by, by the author, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, was that prior to Trump, these events were put together by politicians and they'd go up there and have these big crowds and they would deliver a speech. But the speech was really for the cameras and the people in the audience were really props to show that he or she was popular and they're cheering. But, they're, but the politicians talking in lofty terms to a distant audience... With Trump, it's exactly the opposite. He really is talking directly to the people in the hall and connecting with them in a way that's never happened before. That for, the, for him, they're not props. They're the, they're the audience, the people in the room. And that's why he has this incredible connection. The other thing I'd say is that he, he's, in, in many ways, I know people sort of throw their hands up in horror at this notion, but he's, he's almost like an avant-garde kind of performer, really, but the way he's deconstructing the whole business of politics, the facade, the way it's all just so fake. One of my favourite examples of that is when you can just tell so clearly when he's read. There's, there's always a teleprompter there, and he reads bits of the, 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 the written speech and then goes off and does his own thing, which is always far more effective. And you can absolutely tell when he's speaking from the heart, which is most of the time, versus when he's reading the prepared remarks. But my favourite moment, I think, of the whole time he's been president is he's at one of these rallies and he's reading out the speech. And he lit, I think it's about the, it's about the midterm elections. And it was, you know, these elections are even more important, the 20, these midterms in 20, they're even more important than 2016. And he sort of goes, who wrote this? I don't agree with that. They're not more important. And he just completely kind of upends the whole thing and just 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 rips away the artifice. And that's a really, really interesting thing for someone to be doing. And I think that's why so many people um, cheer him on and see him as a champion, because he's he does, for all the talk about his being whether he's a billionaire or a fake billionaire or whatever, he just has this affinity with with real people he seems to be on their side not on the side of the of the of the traditional politicians yeah but miss maddow uh, described that as uh, him having a two-way conversation with himself when he gives a uh, speech he reads something out and then says yeah quite right quite right yes i agree with that or exactly. repeats it but i think it's brilliant twice. i mean that, it's it's true there, there's a bit of a rule such that test thing goes on which is that so many of the things that he uh, say, says I, I of that kind, the other people react and think, "Oh my God, can you believe it now? We got so. Can you believe he's our president? This is so embarrassing." I actually usually find it funny, but you know, I understand that there's probably a difference there, in the sense that, and this may be a sort of British thing coming into it versus an American thing, is that he is the head of state as well as the elected political leader, and so there's a there there is a you can make an argument that there ought to be a reverence for the office in a way that's potentially lacking because he's not just the elected politician. He also represents the nation in a way. So I can, I can see that side of it. But personally, I'll, I just find it funny but more often than not. Now, pulling you back to the UK, uh, you were a Brexiteer from the start. You made your 
opinions well yeah. known. And in fact, you took a different path to David Cameron. What would you say to Theresa May now? Oh, please just go and let someone take over who really believes in it. She's got this incredible sense of duty. You know, let's get all the important, they are important, caveats out. She's a thoroughly decent person. I really mean that. It's not damning her with faint praise. I think it's pretty rare. I, I really respect her. She's completely sincere, strong sense of duty. All of that's true. But she's not actually doing anyone any favors. She's not helping the, the, the national interest. She's standing in the way of it because the whole point of Brexit was to open up opportunities for Britain and, and, and not to have this defensive posture where you're trying to minimize the harm of it. And it's never going to succeed if you have that mindset at the top. She should step aside and, and allow someone to lead the process who really believes in it and sees it as an opportunity. I was attending the Conservative Party conference and one member of parliament uh, from our side, the Conservative side, uh, said that uh, the one thing we must do is just get out and then do a Trump. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean do a Trump? He said, well, get out on the best terms possible because that's the most important thing now and don't get ourselves locked into the European Union or an extension of Article uh, 50. And then, as Trump has done on the Oslo Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, NAFTA and all the rest of it, is pick it apart in the future but just get out because we are where we are yeah. uh, and we've wasted a lot of time to this particular point. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I've thought all along for two reasons that um, that should have been the, the strategy. One is that anyone could have predicted, and many did, that the EU would obviously make the exit process as painful as possible in order to discourage other countries from doing it. This is obvious to anyone. So the idea that you could get a good deal from them was nonsense from the start. They actively want the deal to be bad for the UK in order to deter other countries from doing it. The second issue with this approach of, of negotiating, trying to get, get a good deal, is that it, it betrays a kind of bureaucratic mindset, as if the only thing that determines the success of a country are the, uh, the, the these sort of bureaucratic arrangements. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the entrepreneurial spirit and the climate for enterprise and the skills and training that British people have, all those things, actually. And outside of the EU, you can do much better on all those fronts. You can have a low corporate tax rate, less regulation. You can make the UK the number one destination for investment in the world. So all these opportunities have got nothing to do with what kind of deal you have. And it's classic bureaucratic thinking to say, well, the whole thing is all about what, what technical deals we have. In the end, people just want to start businesses and sell to the world. And it doesn't have to be the countries on your doorstep. It can be anywhere. So I just think that they've, they're just thinking about it entirely the wrong way. Steve Hilton, thank you very much indeed for joining me and chatting today. And for someone who's known you for so long, it's very pleasing, but yet surprising <laughs> at your success in this country. Here we go. I knew, I knew <laughs> you'd get that in at some point. I would expect nothing less. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. 